As I record this broadcast, the world is still turning, at least for now, and music continues to be made. But it's a strange time. Our world feels out of whack and the future is uncertain. One thing to possibly keep in mind is that the future today is not any more uncertain than it was yesterday or a month ago or 10 years ago. I did come across something. There's a pretty famous, infamous, notorious interview Dylan gave in 1966 to Nat Hentoff for Playboy. It's long and it's hilarious. And Dylan kind of goes off on all sorts of tangents. And it's often held up as an example of Dylan's kind of surrealistic interview style. But actually, a lot of what he says is rock solid. It's just cloaked in a lot of kind of humorous smokescreen language. And at one point, the interviewer asks him about folk music, and he kind of goes off on folk music. And then he says this. As far as folk and folk rock are concerned, it doesn't matter what kind of nasty names people invent for the music. It could be called arsenic music or perhaps fedra music. I don't think that such a word as folk rock has anything to do with it. I have to think of all of this as traditional music. Traditional music is based on hexagrams. It comes about from legends, Bibles, plagues, and it revolves around vegetables and death. And then he says this, There's nobody that's going to kill traditional music. All these songs about roses growing out of people's brains and lovers who are really geese and swans that turn into angels, they're not going to die. It's all those paranoid people who think that someone's going to come and take away their toilet paper. They're going to die. What is Bob Dylan, or more specifically, what was Bob Dylan in 1997, which is where we left off in episode 12? 1997 is a very interesting year in the life of Bob Dylan. Probably the most pivotal moment in his career since the 1974-75 period. Dylan was extremely active from a writing and performing standpoint. His songwriting and music definitely went through some major changes, and he nearly died from an infection around his heart. He also played a concert for the Pope. This is Lucky Episode 13 of A Bob Dylan Primer. Time is in the mind. On May 24, 1997, Bob Dylan turned 56 years old, and after celebrating his birthday that day, he began to suffer chest pains. He was immediately rushed to the hospital, which I think was in Los Angeles, and diagnosed with an infection of the heart called histoplasmosis. A few days later, Dylan's rep released a statement describing the infection as potentially fatal. I can well remember reading the news reports and feeling fairly terrified that Dylan might die. It was an unsettling feeling, and I'm sure it was shared by Dylan fans everywhere. This was still early internet days, so there wasn't a lot of chatter or information beyond the usual official news sources, who were all reporting pretty much the same thing. More news trickled out. The full name of the ailment is histoplasmosis pericarditis, and it's a fungal infection of the sac surrounding the heart. In a Dylan-esque twist, doctors reported that the disease is usually contracted by inhaling fungal spores found in bird and or bat droppings, and is often seen near river valleys in Tennessee and Illinois. 
One month earlier, Dylan played concerts in those states, and it's not too far-fetched to think that Dylan may have gotten sick after taking some long walks along the Mississippi River. What Dylan himself told Guitar World magazine was, maybe one month or two, or two or three days out of the year, the banks around the river get all mucky, and then the wind blows and a bunch of swirling messes in the air. I happened to inhale a bunch of that. That's what made me sick. It went into my heart area, but it wasn't really anything attacking my heart. After a week or so, the news reports indicated that Dylan was recuperating, although he had to cancel tour dates for a European run that was due to start on June 1st. And then, in mid-July, the news came out that Dylan was feeling better and planning to make his scheduled U.S. tour dates that August. Sure enough, on August 3rd, Dylan played a strong set in the town of Lincoln, New Hampshire. I got to see Dylan at the end of 1997 in Los Angeles, and even then you could still powerfully feel the relief and gratitude from the audience at seeing Dylan back on stage and looking healthy. So... August and September 1997, Dylan plays dates in the U.S., and then, on September 27th, he shows up in Bologna, Italy, and plays three songs in front of the Pope and 400,000 faithful fans. The concert was the finale of what's known as the Eucharistic Congress and was seen by cynics as both an attempt by the Catholic Church to appear relevant to young people and by Dylan as a way of promoting his new record, which was due to be released in a few days I'm going to talk about that record in detail for a minute, but one more thing about this concert in front of Pope John Paul II. In his remarks before Dylan took the stage, the Pope paraphrased Blowing in the Wind and asked, How many roads does a man have to follow? Before answering his own question by saying, One, the road of Christ. Cynics can have a field day with this curious moment of intersection between rock and roll and religious history, but for me... It's just one more fantabulous station on the Dillon line. From Hibbing to Bologna is a mighty long way. Anyway, three days after the concert in Italy, on September 30th, 1997, Dillon released a new album called Time Out of Mind. Time Out of Mind was a big deal, and it's a very important record in the Dillon canon. The following spring, Time Out of Mind won three Grammy Awards for Album of the Year, Best Contemporary Folk Album, and Best Male Rock Vocal Performance. Dylan performed at the Grammy ceremony, but we'll save that story for a little later in this broadcast. So, time out of mind. For many people, the first impression of the record is that it's a dark and spooky journey, much concerned with time passing, mortality, and death. And lots of critics saw the record as a response to Dylan's illness and his own mortality. But the crazy thing is, the album was recorded several months before Dylan got sick with the infection. The tracks for Time Out of Mind were recorded in January 1997, and the producer was Daniel Lanois. Lanois also produced Oh Mercy in 1989, and here was Dylan reaching out to him again for this first album of all new material in seven years. And the Lanois-Dylan relationship is worth looking into in a little bit more detail. It's interesting and not insignificant that Dylan called on Daniel Lenoir again to produce this album. My sense is that Dylan felt he was on the verge of something or that he was turning a corner in terms of material and approach and he didn't want to mess around. 
in Chronicles, Dylan's memoir, he talks warmly about his relationship with Lanois on Oh Mercy. In fact, I think there probably was quite a bit of tension on both the Oh Mercy and in the Time Out of Mind sessions. There's just some anecdotal stuff about that out there, but Dylan had his eyes on the bigger prize, and he wanted something from Lanois. And that was to be shown how to navigate a true road between old-school recording styles and equipment and modern digital technology. And Lanois is a musical artist who lives between those two worlds, and I think Dylan felt like he wanted a guide to help him shape his material going down that road. And I have the sense that in returning to Lanois, Dylan wanted to go back to a master and maybe borrow or steal recording and producing craft and tricks that Dylan could sneak out of the studio and take with him on his next records. And in fact, Dylan has been credited as a producer on every album he's released since Time Out of Mind under the pseudonym Jack Frost. And you can hear echoes of Time Out of Mind on everything Dylan's done since then. So I think it was a very, very important album for Dylan. I think Dylan wanted to go back to the well with Lanois one more time and get really deep before moving on. And that's what they did with Time Out of Mind. Time Out of Mind is pretty astonishing. It's one of Dylan's truly great records. It stands up strongly next to Blood on the Tracks and even the miraculous albums from the mid-60s, including Blonde on Blonde. The only downside to the record might be that it's quite long, and the release on vinyl was actually a double album. So Time Out of Mind might suffer from a little bit of bloat, although it's a very dark, mysterious bloat that's dripping with wisdom and sadness. This is a major record. Dylan knew the material was strong, and his writing is both more confessional and also more universal than he had been writing in the recent past. Dylan was 55 years old when he was recording these songs, and the album is shot through with deep heartbreak. If you think that the breakup themes were strong running through blood on the tracks, on Time Out of Mind, Dylan sounds like he's coming out of a relationship with a woman who threw his heart into a wood chipper and then spread the remains across a four-lane highway. It is a bitter, bitter look at the backside of love. So the record came out, and the reaction was very strong. It sold well, and this was possibly the most surprising record, in a positive sense, of anything Dylan's ever put out. I would guess that very few people in 1997 felt or believed that Dylan had a record of this much power still in him. And not only did he have that, he had it in spades, and was able to continue making strong albums after Time Out of Mind. The way that this album feeds into the Dylan myth is that this is now more than 35 years down the road of his career, and he's able to create this new vernacular and new way of looking at the world with a very strong and unblinking view. Dylan locked into some keys during this period, and he's still using those keys today to unlock lyrical and musical mysteries. The first song on Time Out of Mind is called Love Sick, and it starts off with a few seconds of studio background. The musicians are placing their hands on their instruments, and then a guitar comes on, softly chopping out a steady beat, like a vicious clock ticking inside your brain or cold water dripping onto a steel drain. And then the first line of the song is, I'm walking through streets that are dead. Not exactly the cheeriest or most uplifting words to begin a new record. And the song continues with lyrics that are defeated, desperate, dark, 
and excoriating. The second verse ends with the lines, I spoke like a child, you destroyed me with a smile while I was sleeping. After two verses, there's a sharp down and up guitar stroke, two chords that ring out as Dylan sings the chorus, which begins, I'm sick of love, but I'm in the thick of it. Dylan is painting with what's probably his blackest palette ever. He's not messing around on this album. He's absolutely come to play. The second song on the album is a kind of jaunty electric country blues called Dirt Road Blues, and it follows a traditional blues form. And while this song is similar thematically to the desperation and loneliness of the first track, Lovesick, it's not quite as dark or unrelenting. And these two songs begin what becomes a pattern on the album. The sequencing of tracks seems to follow a formula, which is one completely moody, stick a knife in my heart, I'm done song, followed by a sort of bluesy, more up-tempo number, still in the same thematic area, but taking a more traditional blues form, followed then by another moody, atmospheric, killer heartbreak tune. So there'll be one overpowerfully sad and moving song, followed by a slightly peppier tune, and that's carried out all the way through the album, with two semi-exceptions, those being Make You Feel My Love and Highlands, both of which we'll get to in just a minute. Time Out of Mind, if you haven't caught my drift yet, is a formidable record full of great songs. I want to pick out four more tracks from the album, starting with the closer called Highlands. Highlands is the longest song Dylan's ever released on record, 16 and a half minutes of a rambling and funny shaggy dog of a story. It might be pushing it to even call Highlands a song. It's probably closer to a spoken word recitation with musical backing, although the music does follow a traditional blues form. One, four, five chord structure for those of you with music theory in your ears. I'm not going to say too much about Highlands. It must be experienced, and there's a good chance it'll drive you crazy and you'll pull off the needle before the song's done. But the song does have some of the funniest Dylan lines ever, though they're fixed firmly in the language of Dylan's humor, which is not quite the same as our usual comedic grammar. If you remember back from an earlier episode, I was talking about another one of Dylan's really long songs, Desolation Row, and I mentioned that for me, Desolation Row never seems that long. Highlands produces something of an opposite effect. No matter how many times I start listening to the song, telling myself I'm going to track every line all the way through, somewhere during the song my mind wanders and I get lost and lose all sense of time, and it can actually be slightly disorienting sometimes. When I first got this album, I was living in a place with a tiny CD player by my bed, and every night I would play the album and turn out the lights, and usually fell asleep somewhere in the middle of Highlands, which always fueled some crazy dreams. The next song I want to mention from Time Out of Mind is Make You Feel My Love. This one's a little bit of an outlier. The public first heard the song recorded by Billy Joel, whose version came out a few months before Time Out of Mind was released. And then Garth Brooks had a monstrous hit with the song. And then Adele had another huge hit with it. The song by itself has probably sold several million copies by now. And lots of other artists have recorded the song too, including Trisha Yearwood, Brian Ferry, Kelly Clarkson, and Boy George. So what about the song? 
It's a little schmaltzy, a little corny, but it's got a sweet melody and the chorus takes the song to a more complex level. The melody and sentiment of the song remind me a lot of You Belong to Me, the old standard from the 50s that Dylan recorded during the Good As I've Been to You sessions. It's always heartwarming when a Dylan tune becomes a standard wedding song. There are two more truly standout ballads on Time Out of Mind. One is Standing in the Doorway, a song I've always liked, but which I revisited in preparation for this broadcast. I think Standing in the Doorway is one of the great songs of later period Dylan, and although it kind of flew under the radar for a long time, I think it's starting to get a little more much-needed attention, much-deserved attention and listening. Standing in the Doorway is a bittersweet slow dance of a melody, and it kind of lulls you in. Suddenly, towards the end of the first verse, a line jumps out and ambushes you. Dylan sings, Don't know if I saw you, if I would kiss you or kill you. And we could probably discuss the linguistics and grammar of that line for a long time. And for a much longer time, we could argue about the kiss you or kill you part. But the real coup de grace of the lyric comes in the next line, which is, It probably wouldn't matter to you anyhow. And that's not some nihilistic who-gives-a-damn sentiment. It's the narrator using the word probably to soften the completely intolerable notion that his love object truly doesn't care about him anymore. And then the mini-chorus, You left me standing in the doorway, crying, I got nothing to go back to now. I was about to use the term abject misery and realized I wasn't sure of that word's exact meaning, so I looked it up. Abject means experienced or present to the maximum degree, which in itself sounds like a Dylan line. Standing in the doorway is an expression of abject misery. But then, towards the end of the song, something else happens. Dylan sings, And even if the flesh falls off my face, I know someone will be there to care, which seems to indicate that the singer is not, in fact, the most abjectly alone person in the universe. And then Dylan continues, It always means so much, even the softest touch. I see nothing to be gained by any explanation. There's no words that need to be said. With that instruction, I won't say any more about standing in the doorway. It's a wonderful song with a heart of sadness and mystery. It might just be the second strongest song on the record, although that, like everything, is debatable. The core song of Time Out of Mind would seem to be not dark yet. The song is completely direct in its communication of a person who is at the end of their rope, but still hanging on. The last verse is, Every nerve in my body is so naked and numb, I can't even remember what it was I came here to get away from. Don't even hear the murmur of a prayer. It's not dark yet, but it's getting there. The song is a musical corollary to the famous lines from Samuel Beckett's 1953 novel, The Unnameable, where Beckett writes, It will be I, it will be the silence where I am. I don't know, I'll never know. In the silence you don't know, you must go on. I can't go on, I'll go on. So, Time Out of Mind carried us through the fall of 1997 and into the new year. And as December 1997 turned into 1998, 
China announced that more than one million chickens would be slaughtered to try and slow down the spread of what they called the bird flu, which had spread to human beings. That's a lot of chickens. In February 1998, the Grammy Award ceremony was held in Los Angeles, and Time Out of Mind won the best album of the year, capping for that moment Dylan's pretty remarkable 10-year climb back into critical and popular acceptance. But the Grammy ceremony that year will be remembered more for what happened during the broadcast. First, you had Lady Soul, Aretha Franklin, stepping in for an ailing Luciano Pavarotti and absolutely nailing the aria, Desum Norma, with no rehearsal, still probably the greatest live moment of all the Grammy broadcasts. And then, as Sean Colwyn came out to accept her award for Song of the Year, beating out Wu-Tang Clang, Old Dirty Bastard from Wu-Tang stormed the stage and grabbed a mic and said over and over again, Wu-Tang is for the children, a moment that has also entered our pop consciousness. And then, to top everything else, Dylan came out to perform Lovesick. And all was going fine when in the middle of the performance, which featured a group of dancers doing interpretive moves, one of the male dancers stripped off his t-shirt to reveal big black letters across his chest spelling out Soy Bomb. Soy Bomb. He danced around wildly as Dylan looked perturbed but kept right on singing. No one had any idea what soy bomb was supposed to mean, although it was later revealed that the dancer's name was Michael Portnoy, and he was also a conceptual artist who conceived of the stunt as a piece of performance art. It was pretty crazy, and it's hard to imagine something like that being possible in today's crackdown age. I've placed a link to a video of the performance on the links page on our website, and Soy Bomb explodes about halfway through the song. Once Portnoy has been ushered off gently by security, you can see bass player Tony Garnier with a big grin on his face. But Dylan stays pretty stoic, although he does rip into an extra energetic guitar solo, as if he's saying, we're professionals up here, ain't gonna be thrown off by no conceptual art prank. Moving on from Time Out of Mind, which came out in 1997, Dylan wouldn't release another album of new material until 2001. During that four-year gap, Dylan toured a lot and co-headlined a bunch of shows with some very big names. In 1998, he played a short series of concerts with the Rolling Stones in South America, and he did a few shows co-headlining with Van Morrison and Joni Mitchell, and I saw two of those shows in Los Angeles. You definitely had the sense that Van and Dylan were competing with each other a little bit. Joni sort of floated above all that and performed a great set, but Dylan and Van were both solid the nights I saw the shows. I was also lucky enough to see Dylan in 1999, this time co-headlining with Paul Simon at the Hollywood Bowl, and that was also a terrific show. During these years, Dylan also played some concerts with Phil Lesh from The Grateful Dead and played a bunch of solo shows. Dylan's next album, coming four years after Time Out of Mind, is called Love and Theft. And I'm not sure if Time Out of Mind started something that continued in Love and Theft and beyond, or if Love and Theft represents a sort of a beginning of a new phase for Dylan. Love and Theft is very different from Time Out of Mind. It's a far more upbeat record for one thing. So for me, I think of it kind of as the beginning of a new phase. Again, remembering that these so-called phases are never clear-cut delineations. One of the things that occurs to me as I think about Dylan's many 
transformations and the ebb and flow of these changes is that it seems like one way to look at or think about or absorb these changes is that Dylan is always in the process of moving in and out from a more confessional or personal stance to a lesser one. So more confessional to less confessional, more personal to less personal. So if we think of another side of Bob Dylan as on the more confessional side of things, the follow-up albums, bringing it all back home and Highway 61 Revisited might be viewed as somewhat less confessional. This isn't a hard and fast rule, but it is one way to think about Dylan's output of material. Often this shift will occur within a single album and sometimes even within a single song. On first listen, we might lock into or be more attracted to the more confessional material. That might happen a little faster, but the less confessional or seemingly less personal material is not any less interesting or compelling. It's just that the layer of mask is a little bit thicker. The main auditory marker of Dylan's late or later periods is what some have called his croaky voice. And for all Dylan listeners, the lovers and the not-in-lovers, Dylan's increasingly fragile growl has been something we've all had to accommodate in some way or another. Again, hard to pinpoint when this really kicked in, but it's certainly in force by the time we get to Love and Theft. One thing about Love and Theft that has nothing to do with what's on the record is that it was released to the public on September 11th, 2001. And I do think there's a way to think of this record and all of the Dylan albums that have come since then as somewhat post-9-11 music in the way that everything Dylan recorded in the 60s was 60s music and so on through the decades. The most accessible, maybe the most appealing song on Love and Theft is Mississippi. And that song contains a line, sky full of fire, pain pouring down. Again, the album was released on 9-11. Oddly, Mississippi is a little bit of an outlier because the song was originally recorded for the Time Out of Mind sessions in 1997 and then re-recorded with a different arrangement for Love and Theft. Rolling Stone magazine called Mississippi a drifter's love song that seems to sum up Dylan's entire career. Love and Theft is an album where Dylan brings some new stuff to the table, the most significant being his writing style, which, even though he borrowed often heavily from other sources in the past, here he begins to use what's been called a cut-up style, which was first used by surrealist poets in the 1920s and 30s, and then novelist William Burroughs in the 50s and 60s. The concept was first used talking about cutting up a single text and then repurposing the pieces for a new text. Literally, cutting up a poem or a piece of prose and then reorganizing those pieces in a new way. In nowadays terms, it's really just a hipster term for borrowing, or less politely, stealing from previous texts and songs. So, since Love and Theft, and thanks to the miraculously speedy and thorough properties of internet search engines, there's been a large volume of articles and discussion tracing nearly every Dylan melody and lyric to some previous text or song. And while it's interesting to see some of these songs traced back to sometimes bizarre original sources, at the end of the day, it feels a little like a parlor game and not really connected to the music Dylan's putting out. There are plenty of people lined up on 
all sides of this mostly circular argument, but I think it's best to just take these tracings as background information. They don't or shouldn't impact the experience of listening to Dylan's songs. As part of Dylan's borrowing technique on this album, and I think on every record since, he employs a heavy use of jokes and puns, sometimes repurposing corny old ones and sometimes creating his own new riffs on old comedic tropes. And a lot of the music forms are borrowed or repurposed as well. Most of the tunes are a variation of either pre-war blues, swing, or 50s rock and roll. The last song on the album, one of the best on the record, is a good example of what we're talking about. The song is called Sugar Babe, which is also the title of a song by old-time singer Doc Boggs, and apparently it's a song Dylan heard and loved in his early New York City days. Dylan also borrows heavily from an old song called Lonesome Road, which was recorded by Frank Sinatra. But the original of Lonesome Road was done by a guy named Gene Austin in the 1920s, and Dylan pulls the melody and arrangement for his Sugar Baby straight off this old recording. I've included links to these songs on the links page for this episode on our website, so give them a spin and see what you think. At first, you'll be shocked. Oh my gosh, Dylan just ripped this song off completely. But after a while, you might calm down some and realize that this is just another piece of Dylan's great puzzle. For the last verse of Sugar Baby, Dylan sings, Sugar Baby, get on down the line. You ain't got no sense, no how. You went years without me. Might as well keep going now. Next episode, we'll see how Dylan navigates the new millennium, continuing to create songs and perform them live, but also how he finds time to write a big book and win a big prize. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to hear some of the music referenced in this broadcast, please check out the public playlists I created on Spotify under the name A Bob Dylan Primer. Also, please visit our website at abobdylanprimer.com to find cool videos and other stuff about Dylan in the form of links to some amazing stuff for each episode so far. As always, I encourage you to share the podcast and the website with anyone you think might be interested especially people who aren't particularly active on social media, as I have no other way to reach those potential listeners other than by word of mouth. Word of mouth is an interesting turn of phrase. All right, that's all for now. Keep listening and thank you very much. (laughs) ¶¶